This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. It's been a little bit since I've released an episode, and that's really due to some vacation and some other things that have taken up my time over the last month, uh, some other traveling as well as some other things just that have interfered with life. So I do apologize for the disruption in the overall release schedule of the show, which I've tried to keep at a regular uh, bi-weekly pace. So I apologize that that has not been the case so far this month, but I am super excited to share with you this interview I did with Kelsey McKinney earlier this month about her new novel, God Spare the Girls. Kelsey is a first-time novelist as well as an established journalist and writer. She is one of the co-founders and co-owners of Defector and has written for a number of different outlets. And in this conversation, we talk about her book as well as her experiences in evangelicalism and her experiences in the media and how the media covers things related to white evangelicalism and a host of other topics. And I really can't wait, as always, for you to hear this conversation. I do want to also note that a couple of other cool things happened in July. I was able to do a brief segment on The Week with Joshua Johnson on MSNBC earlier this month. And I was also able to publish an essay with Religion Dispatches as well just last week. For Religion Dispatches, I wrote an essay about the recent David Jeremiah sermon from June 27th that <laughs> uh, put evangelicals sort of front and center as uh, this sort of new instance of the falling away, which uh, I tried to put into a bit more... Uh, proper context than what Pastor David Jeremiah did. I will link to both of those in the show notes, um, but both of those opportunities were just uh, outstanding privileges and something that I was just humbled to do in uh, both instances. And I am sort of in awe that, that either of those events happened. Thank you very much to Joshua Jackson and all of those over at MSNBC, as well as uh, Evan and others over at Religion Dispatches for the opportunity to talk and write about evangelical matters. So July 2021 is the five-year anniversary of this show, and I just want to thank each and every one of you who's listened to the show, who's reached out through social media, through email, through the Facebook group, through any other avenue uh, that we may have uh, conversed or that my work has reached you. Uh, I am just so incredibly humbled by what has happened here with the evangelical hashtag, with conversations that have proliferated over the last several years. In that Religion Dispatches essay that I mentioned earlier, I really tried to put into context that what we've seen over the last few years through things like podcasting and social media is really a continuation of work that has been going on for decades. And I'm thankful for having any small part in continuing this conversation and in continuing to challenge these sorts of institutions that we were all formed in, that we were all impacted by positively and, of course, negatively, as we talk about here often. And I just want to thank each and every one of you. I have some plans for how to move this into the next few years, and I'm going to be sharing those with you soon. 
But for today, we will focus on this conversation with Kelsey McKinney. As always, this show was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. If you want to support this show and my work, you can sign up for a paid subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts uh, or Podchaser or anywhere else that you can rate and review podcasts. Let other people know about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. You can follow me on Instagram at brchastain underscore. And the same on TikTok now. I have posted a couple of videos. Um, and uh, also on Instagram over at exvangelicalpod. All right, everybody, let's get right into it. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is Kelsey McKinney. Kelsey is co-owner and features writer at Defector.com and author of the new novel, God Spare the Girls. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you for joining. I I really enjoyed your book and I can't wait to talk about that. Um, But before we get there, as you know, as a listener to the show, uh, when we were talking a little bit before, I like to start by learning what your first sort of exposure to religion was, what your religious upbringing was like. So what were those early sort of years uh, in religion like for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I I do listen to the show. And so I kind of knew that this question was coming, obviously, ahead of time. And I was thinking about how it's kind of similar to the question of like to tell your testimony that you get so often (laughs) in the evangelical church, right? Of like, how did you come to know Jesus? And so it's very funny to like think about this question now in a different position, having not been asked it in, I don't know, a decade. Um, When I was in the evangelical church, I always said I had the most boring testimony of all time, which is that (laughs) I was born and raised evangelical. Um, My dad worked in a church and was it was a non-denominational Christian church. So evangelical, extremely. And I was, I think, saved at five, baptized at six. So really just fully in the water at all times. Um, And I... I mean, I did it all, right? I did VBS. I led a small group when I was in high school. I, yeah, I did everything. So it's, it's hard for me to kind of know, to separate even my evangelical experience from like my entire childhood, which right. is kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you had this experience of, a lot of people say like cradle Lutheran or cradle evangelical. That was your experience totally. you just in the waters from jump. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about it in retrospect and I was at church like four days a week. You yeah. know? So it's just like I lived there essentially. My dad worked there. I was there all the time. Right. What was it like for you? Did you enjoy that? Like you didn't know any different at that point. So mm-hmm. was it something where you bristle at it or anything like that? What was that? whole sort of experience like it's weird because now i have a lot of problems with the evangelical church and we'll get to that later and a lot of things that in retrospect i look back on and say oh that had a really negative impact on me and my growth as a person but it's it's hard it was always hard for me to kind of balance that knowledge that there had been harm there because at the time i loved it so much and like i i mean as a kid kids like most things like I liked school I was a pretty amenable child so like church was fine but especially as like a young teen I loved church like it 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 had the structure and I'm like the kind of person who likes structure and it also gave me a huge friend group that was really affirming and totally I mean, Bible study is like essentially just group therapy and like going to group therapy as a teen is like a huge (laughs) gift because even though you're being led by like other fucking 18 year olds who have no idea what they're saying, you at least are sitting in a room and being like, I'm having a really hard time, which is nice. It's nice to have that community, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, and I'm not sure what like exactly what your age cohort was, but I was in youth group in like the late 90s, early 2000s, 
it felt like the golden age of youth groups and maybe everybody feels that way, but, <laughs> but I mean, you're absolutely right. Like for me, it was, uh, when my family moved, youth group can be like this thing where it's just a, as you said, like a built-in friend group. It's really powerful in that way. <laughs> it's weird too, because I feel like you're, you said like, you don't know any better, but at the same time, you do have awareness that other people exist, right? Like, you know, that right. not everyone is evangelical. And for me, I went to public school, which I know not everyone on this podcast did. I just went to the school that was closest to me until high school when I went to a fine arts high school. So I went to like a magnet school. What that meant practically is that everyone in my public school was mostly Christian and everyone at the fine arts high school was not. And so I had this really interesting experience where I became aware of all of these people outside of the church that I grew up in. But at the time I was like, oh, well, I have a better deal than them. I have all of these friends who are all so nice to me and I have no drama. So it just felt really great to be in that group. In retrospect, I don't know that my situation was actually better, but I thought it was for sure. When you were in that environment, did you tend to hang out with like your youth group friends over against your people you knew from your school? I had like a real split personality disorder in high school, to be completely honest, where I was like a very perfect little angel at church who like had all of these verses memorized and was like a very good kid. And then I thought I was a devil at school, but in reality, I was still a very good kid who just like smoked cigarettes sometimes in their car. <laughs> um, so yes and no, right? I had friends at high school that like didn't believe the same thing as me. And I thought I was like very edgy for that. And in retrospect, I'm like, that is a completely normal thing to have friends who believe different things than you. That's not, not sexy and weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't your entire life wasn't dictated or controlled by the evangelical world. And in, in, in as much as like you went to a public school, so you had some exposure. What about for things like media access as a kid? I mean, now it's sort of hard to even understand because with smartphones, you can access anything you want, uh, good or bad, liberal or conservative. But in those pre-internet days, it was much easier for, for some parents to control that sort of stuff. So what was that element of things like? Did did you only have Christian music at your, uh, or only listen to Christian, Christian music, that sort of thing? It's so funny because I definitely, like growing up, had a kind of superiority complex where I was like, we're not like other evangelicals. Like <laughs> my parents let us watch The Simpsons, right? Like I thought we were just like wild. Um, and so it was kind of funny when I got like when I got to college and realized that like a lot of the culture that I thought was like reg quote unquote regular culture or mainstream culture was actually Christian culture. Like I was like, what do you mean Stacy or Rico isn't like regular culture? Right? Like, what do you mean Veggie Tales <laughs> isn't watched by everyone? Right? Like I was indoctrinated enough in the culture that I thought that just everything I consumed was secular which is extremely weird in retrospect because my parents were like, to their credit, um, hated Christian music, almost all of it. And so they were like, no child of ours will listen to like Amy Grant. You will only listen <laughs> to like Prince, which is useful as an adult, but it's kind of funny because all my friends listen to Amy Grant. So then I still listen to her anyway. And like, I like Amy Grant to be clear, but it's like, I ended up consuming all of this culture anyway, and just through osmosis. Yeah, that's like a evangelical market focus groups, basically. <laughs> yeah, and I was in youth group at the time where like a lot of evangelical bands were crossing over, right? Like it was like the Switchfoot era, oh, and yeah. so like everyone, it was easy to be like, no, our culture is everyone's culture because. They, there was kind of some bleeding that was happening between those lines. Yeah, Switchfoot in particular, I remember I when I worked at the at a Christian bookstore, they were like, mm -hmm. they're really good band. Learning to Breathe is a great album. <laughs> and then like, then I started working at a Borders and this guy <laughs> that was in charge of the music section and like tried to get him to like Beautiful Letdown. And he was like, this is, this is terrible. What are you making me listen to? I mean, this is, this is a good example of like how indoctrinated I was that like I thought Reliant K was a secular band. <laughs> like I was like, oh yeah, that's like a normal band. And it wasn't until later that I was like, wait, wait, <laughs> no. 
I mean, Sadie Hawkins <laughs> Dance is still a great song. Oh, absolutely slaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with all these formative experiences, when did you start to question or, you know, get some distance from uh, from these things? And now, even the way you speak, you, you have context and you can look back. Um, but when you were sort of in the thick of it, what's what were some of the things that made you start to uh, question uh, white evangelicalism? And- yeah, it's it's been interesting because I once I stopped going to like fancy big evangelical church, I just like completely stopped talking about the fact that I had grown up that way and didn't like tell anyone. It was this big kind of secret. Um, and then I wrote this whole book about the evangelical church and now everyone is asking me questions about it all the time. So I've been forced to like actually realize some things, which has been healthy, but also (laughs) weird. Um, and I think I always said before I started talking to other people who grew up like us and changed their beliefs, I always said I started questioning in college. Like, that's what I always said. I was like, oh, I was a perfect little angel through high school. And then I went to college and suddenly had all of these questions. And I don't think that's actually true. I think what actually happened is I started having a lot of questions in high school and I did not feel like it was safe to ask those questions. And so instead of looking at them, I just pushed them all really, really deep inside of me mm-hmm. and then got to college and they all exploded. So I, I think what really started for me, those like were two major issues in the evangelical church. The first was purity culture, which I just like always thought was bullshit. Like there was something in my little brain, even as a middle schooler, that was like, it's not fair to call women stumbling blocks to men, right? Like I had this kind of little blip in my brain that just could not accept that. And the second was like the immense homophobia rhetoric. And that is because I do identify as bisexual and growing up like played softball, which is classically a gay space. And so I kind of had a really hard time swallowing these core tenants that weren't even in the book we were supposed to believe, but seemed Mm -hmm. to be requirements from everyone else around me. And I think those were the two things that I started being like, okay, if everyone else is looking at this book and getting this information and I'm not, what does that say about me? And more importantly, like, why don't I feel guilty about any of these things, right? Because the evangelical church tells you very clearly, if you don't feel guilty, you're up to no good. And I was like, but I am up to no good and I don't feel guilty. So what does this mean? (laughs) Yeah, that's such a, I mean, that's such a good point. Like the absence of guilt is like something you should feel shame about. And like, especially for things that we now know are normal things like teenagers being hormonal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Having crushes. Normal. (laughs) (laughs) Completely normal. You mentioned purity culture explicitly. Mm -hmm. Was that the sort of mega books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye and She Said Yes and... Um, I know there was, at least for for guys, there was every man's battle and every young man's Mm -hmm. battle. Were those sort of things circulating and being taught by the leadership at your church? They weren't being taught. Like, I I don't think I ever heard anyone, like, mention those books from the stage of the youth group. But everyone was reading them. So I think what happened, especially the two you just mentioned about every young man's battle, which I had like literally blocked out of my mind until you said it. And then I had like flashbacks immediately to people reading it. Sorry. Um, (laughs) No, it's okay. It's good. I think that that it was something that like wasn't ever told to me, probably because I was like a young woman in the church, but that was certainly every guy I knew in youth group was like having it shoved into their hands. Right. Yeah. So we did though, we had a true love weights program. Like I did it. I had like the little ring. It was like a whole, you know, I said the little vows. It was a whole, a whole thing, but I didn't ever read any of those books. And I think that was always just because I've always been kind of like precocious and I was like, they're not very well written. And so I don't want to, which in retrospect, I think served me probably better to not read. I kissed dating goodbye at 15, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's a whole story in and of itself. The sort of journey of both this entire generation of women and women are the primary victims of uh, purity culture, but men also have a have their own s- specific struggles that 
you know, they're demonized in a different way. Um, I know when I talked to Linda K. Klein, uh, she said that women's bodies are, are dangerous and men's minds are, that's sort of stuck with me for a while. Yeah. I think about that all the time that like when I first started to like really push back on some of this stuff, I was like, this is really bad for girls, right? It's really bad for young girls to be taught this. And the further I get away from, you know, like having an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, the more I think that like, it's also so, so bad for boys. And this is the whole like premise of equality, right? Is that like structures of power that serve to hurt other people are bad for everyone. Yeah. And I, I feel so bad for all the teenage boys I grew up with. Like imagining being told that like ever thinking someone's hot is a sin. I'm like, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's wild. I mean, what, what so many people have lived through, including you and me and the people listening to this show is completely crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and, and that's ableist and I'm sorry I use that language, uh, but it's wild. <laughs> When you got to college and you were able to sort of explore these doubts and things like that, um, what were some of the positive things that that came out of that period? Yeah, it's, I didn't like clean break. Like, I think I had enough pressure from my family and like my whole community and every single person I knew who was like, where are you going to go to church at the big liberal school in Austin, Texas? Right. Like everyone was like, who's going to save your soul? Um, and so I did join a giant mega church um, in Austin and I went for the first two years of college. So it was kind of a like more gradual release for me. Um, and I'm really glad that I did that in retrospect. Like I think that so much of my identity and my understanding of the world was based in the tenets of not Christianity, but of evangelicalism and the ability to kind of take my time getting out of that situation, I think helped me. And so by the time I was like really wrestling with questions about what I actually believed and not just like, quote unquote, rules that evangelicalism had just thrust upon me, I had a good community of people around me who either believed radically different things than me or believed things that were similar to what I had grown up with, but in, but more accessible to me, right? Like I was surrounded by like Methodists and Episcopalians and yeah. people who were culturally Catholic and to be able to see other people having beliefs and not feeling oppressed by them and not feeling stressed out <laughs> by their beliefs, which just seems so simple, right? Like, of course, the thing you should be you believe in shouldn't constantly be causing you to like freak out but i had no <laughs> concept for that so right, being yeah. able to see people who like prayed or didn't pray or had these like more amorphous relationships with their faith i think really helped me to start asking the questions of like okay so what do i believe and what do i want to believe and how does that play out in my life and so i think like that was great for me. And a lot of that did come from people who had grown up in the same faith as me, who were going through the same kind of questions. And in retrospect, it's really interesting because everyone I was friends with in youth group, even though we were all there like four days a week and all like very good kids are now like none of us believe in that anymore. Like we have all kind of drifted. And I'm like, how is it that all of my friends were the like heathens on accident? <laughs> and I think it's because we like found each other, you know, like you even at a young age kind of know like, oh, this is someone who I feel safe and comfortable around. And so that my oldest friend named Bethany is someone who like we processed through this together, which was great. <laughs> and that's a gift that the church gave me is like people who knew exactly where I came from, knew every hand motion to every like Christian worship song. Yeah. And also knew what it meant to like be terrified that you might be wrong. And so I think like that's a huge gift that the church gave me and by accident. 
Right. Yeah. It's it, it's really funny, and that's actually one of the driving impetuses for why this show started. Like, why did all these people I went to Christian college with aren't evangelical anymore? We find that you know mm-hmm. you have a a radar for that sort of thing. Isn't it weird though to think back? I assume there were people at your Christian college who came out and still very much believed the things that you were indoctrinated in. So isn't it kind of weird that the people you were friends with didn't? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, someone on on Twitter, uh, Caitlin Stout, she said that we aren't we aren't dropouts; we're graduates. <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about people that left, uh, you know, left evangelicalism, uh, which I think is a really interesting uh, uh, spin on it, um, perspective mm-hmm. on it, because because it does feel like because it is the people that were deeply engaged, right? And they just essentially found it wanting. Um, well, it's a weird pipeline, right? Like, it feels to me like there's a pipeline between like people who were extremely involved youth group kids and people who now do not go to those churches, which is like right. really stunning to think about that the people who were the most, at least for me, I can say I was extremely invested. Like I was there all the time. I believed it fully. And that's the thing that's so hard for me to wrap my mind around now is I'm like, when, like, I can't get back to that, right? I can't understand the fervor that I had as a high schooler, but I know that I had it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You built a career as a features writer. Is that sort of capacity and that ability and this this deeply personal experience of going through and really radically changing your mind, um, how has that informed your your writing and how you approach uh, the, di- the different types of features that you write? Yeah, I think... The first way it affects it is that I I think the Bible is like a cool book and I loved reading it and I loved like close reading it. And so I think in a way, like Bible church set me up to write for a living in that all I did was like close textual analysis at like a college level for 20 years, <laughs> uh, which is insane, um, ridiculous thing to do. But I loved doing it, right? I loved like comparing verses to each other, which is like extremely nerdy. And at the time I was like, this is proof that I'm very faithful. And in retrospect, I'm like, no, you're just obsessed with books. Like you're not <laughs> that's the only, that was really what was at play here. But I do think that the like loss of my faith, right. Of like losing that whole culture in like one fell swoop and suddenly not having it mm-hmm. and looking back and remembering how absolutely certain I was that I was right. Terrifies me, right? Like it to this day terrifies me that like, whenever I'm like absolutely certain that something is true, this little voice in the back of my head is like, are you sure though? Like, how sure are you that this is true? Because in the past you were certain and now you're not. And so I do think that has been helpful in that a lot of things that I feel really passionate about, I still want to hear what other people have to say, which helps you in feature writing because you go in no matter who you are and no matter how like, quote unquote, unbiased you think you are, you always go in with an assumption of some sort. You have some idea in your head that you think is true. And so I always try to identify that before I get there, if I can, so that I can make sure to be like, is it true? And to ask other people if I'm right or not, because most of the time I'm not like, I don't know anything. (laughs) Right. I mean, you've, you've written for Vox and, and Buzzfeed and Vanity Fair and a whole bunch of other publications. Um, I'm always curious with people who have experience in those types of media environments, these newer places like Fox, which is coming up on 10 years or story places like the times that has like a 150 year history. Um, I'm always curious about how they cover religion. Uh, um, because that's sort of, even just as this indie podcaster, that's basically in a way like my beat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when you're in those spaces, do you, do you think people that work in those spaces or who might have had their entire life in liberal minded type places, do you think they, have the awareness of what that type of mindset is like, like the evangelical mindset, or, I mean, obviously in 2016 and since there's been a lot of head scratching from some folks uh, about how, how these things equate. But um, I think, I mean, obviously there are people who defy this rule, right? Obviously this is not true for everyone, right? but there is a version 
of liberalism that is exactly like evangelicalism, where you grow up with hallowed texts and your parents tell you what to believe and everyone around you believes the same thing and you never question it. And you grow up and you're 30 years old and in a newsroom and no one has ever pushed back on anything you've believed because you've been surrounded by people who believe the same thing as you, right? You're in a kind of like thoughtful bubble. And I think in a lot of ways that bubble is better for a lot of people than the bubble that we grew up in, but it's still a bubble, right? So in 2016 in particular, I remember having dinner with a friend of mine who wrote for Time magazine and we were both like screaming. I mean, we were like three margaritas deep, like screaming at each other. This is like late October because no one would listen to us. And we were both like, Trump is going to win. Mm -hmm. Like me being from like the evangelical belt and she being like a young black woman, we were both like, we are looking around and like, he's going to win. And everyone in our respective newsrooms was like, well, that's not what the polling says. That's not what we think. And we were like, okay, but you're not listening to anyone. Like you're not listening to what the people on the ground are saying. And what they're saying is nobody is talking to you, but they all are going to vote for him, which is like, (laughs) it was so frustrating. So like, I think you're, I think you're onto something. I think you're right that there is a kind of barrier between like, who is reporting in general and what their backgrounds are, right? Like media is still not to play into like the conservative talking belief here, but media is still, you have to have connections to be in it. And that means that for the most part, a lot of the people in media grew up wealthy and grew up on a coast and grew up and went to like a fancy college. And that of course dictates the kind of stories you get. And like that is terrifying to me as a journalist because there's nothing I want more than like the people covering everything at the Dallas Morning News to be people who actually have like grown up in those communities and understand what's happening around them Um, and the more local news collapses the more worried I get about this to be honest because it's like you just don't have as many people listening in general yeah and I, I appreciate you, you you going on that little tangent with me. And that's my other podcast, Powers and Principalities. Um, the next season is going to be about media and evangelicalism. So like oh, it's, no. it's definitely <laughs> uh, in my in my mind. But I, I I think that one of the benefits of growing up in something, then deconstructing and questioning it, and all the things that that we talk about now, is, is that actually we have sort of, a lot of us have swapped information ecosystems. <laughs> so, you know, we, like we may have grown up listening to Rush Limbaugh in the car and we know exactly what is being said to those audiences. And when a liberal audience listens in, they don't hear the same cues that, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I just think that that's like a sort of secret skill and might even be a little undervalued. <laughs> right. No, I think about that a lot that there are like, any culture has dog whistles to it, right? Things that like, like there are people who can compliment you from various parts of the country and they are actually like dragging you right to hell. And if you don't know what to listen for, you don't hear it, right? And like that is a really interesting thing about both evangelicals and I think people like us who have left that belief system is that we all have our own dog whistles, right? We all have something that like kind of sets off an alarm bell in our head of terror or of compliance, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> One of the real defining features of evangelicalism is that it there's a sociological term uh, called total institution, right? And so it just encapsulates your entire life. It, it draws on every, and affects every part, your mental life, your social life, your spiritual life, who your community, your direct community, um, where the boundaries of your community are, all of those things. So Things like white evangelicalism and Mormonism and other high-demand religious groups, uh, they fit that bill. And actually, um, when I was reading your book, God Spare the Girls, I just thought that like you, in so many different ways, you really captured that element of what it's like to live in uh, white evangelicalism in particular. Uh, and it actually, like when I was trying to structure and think about questions for you. I was like, how am I going to do this without, without spoilers? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, like letting certain things go, um, and really talking about the the entirety of the book. Um, and I don't want to. I don't really want to do that. So if 
if you could, could you share a little bit about how the like how the story starts and who the characters are uh, in your book, and then we can talk about some of the themes and stuff. But I don't, I, I don't want to spoil like the entire plot. Fine, we won't spoil the plot today. <laughs> if you insist, we won't do it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a novel. It's all fake, um, and. God's Bear the Girls tells the story of two sisters, Caroline and Abigail, who are the daughters of a very famous megachurch evangelical pastor who has a secret that will ruin their lives. And the book kind of opens, it's set in North Texas, which is where I'm from and is a community that I love and cherish very deeply. Um, and it opens with the bridal shower, which anyone who has grown up in the South um knows is a real to do and kind of begins with the questions for Caroline, who is the main character of how she's starting to see her faith kind of break down in front of her and seeing some decisions that she can make that would certainly cause it to break down and choosing to make those decisions. Um, yeah. Does that, is that good? What else? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> It starts at the bridal shower and within the first 30 pages or so, all the, the stakes are raised <laughs> for these two uh, young women. What can I say? I love drama. It was great. And <laughs> we already talked a bit about purity culture uh, for yourself, but that is one of the main things that permeates this book is yep. the presence of purity culture and sort of the sexual ethics of mm-hmm. and gender norms of uh, white evangelicalism. Um, and you really express just through the the point of view character of Caroline, as well as uh, this mental comparison that she does between herself and her sister and her mother. Could you talk a little bit about um, what you brought to that and how things like purity culture and and the gender norms that, <laughs> uh, especially, if, like, especially if it's a complementarian church, which um, which this church in your Churches. book is, yeah, <laughs> and how that how that informed the way your characters acted, and how Caroline, as a like a high school senior, is really starting to question these things. Yeah. So the the parent, right, the bad pastor, his name is Luke Nolan, and the kind of lore of Luke Nolan is that he made his name by essentially rebranding the true love waits program for like a modern audience. And the second, some of the earliest stuff I had were like full sermons for Luke Nolan, just because I thought it was like funny to write them. And then I would end up with these things that were like actually very toxic. And I was like, Oh, this is so fascinating. Right. And so I ended up using one of those sermons pretty early in the book in the second chapter where you can kind of see the way that he works through these things and he kind of pitches the church and the congregation he's speaking of the southern baptist convention he pitches them on essentially like purity culture and purity sermons are outdated there's like a kind of self-reflectiveness that he has and then immediately like turns it into a sermon about purity culture, right? And so one of the things that I wanted to do with him and with his daughters is to make them really aware of how the outside world perceived them. Because I think that that's something that people don't realize about evangelical churches is that the people in them know what's being said about them by like the general population. They know that other people think purity pledges are weird. They know that like general population doesn't think you should wait till marriage to have sex, right? And they take a sort of pride in that. And so I wanted to kind of give this book um, a little bit of darkness in that, I guess, in that like Luke Nolan is manipulative and he's smart. And so his kind of goal, I guess, in this sermon is to like restart purity culture in a way that makes it seem like it's more affirming. So his daughter's don't necessarily know better than that, but they feel differently, right? They feel like it's wrong. One of Luke Nolan's refrains is he always just says, there are my daughters. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how he greets his, that's how he greets them when they enter a room. Um, and it really captures the way in which masks are so important in that culture. Right. And it, it was, it was so interesting to read 
read a novel from that perspective and see all of the the mental uh, the thought patterns of of Caroline as she observes all of this, right? Because because masks are are integral to um, to white evangelicalism sort of being perpetuated. Did you realize that you had a mask though while you were still in that culture? I the thing is, I don't think you you have to be in that questioning sort of posture, right? Uh, and that's where that's where you sort of center. Caroline's perspective and where she is in her own personal development is she's she's creating the distance like she's 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 not going to a Christian college she's taking steps that that lots of people do right uh to to individuate um and I think but I think that's what's so interesting about your book is throughout the course of the book you see the people that are even though they know they're wearing a mask they still put it back on and then there are some people that decide to to not play along or, yeah. you know, and it's done in a very human, relatable manner. My, um, my therapist was saying something interesting recently about how when you about like the way the psychology that they've done on celebrities and how celebrities have a really hard time remembering like who they are as individuals and that that can often be because they are always considering what someone else wants from them instead of Mm. ever asking what they actually want. And I, I used that in the book, I think almost unknowingly that I had done that my whole life, right? Like I made these girls very clearly wear masks, very clearly know when to pull them down and when to take them off, made them intricately aware of every motion around them And I think that I knew that I did that, right? Like I knew that I did it, but I didn't realize kind of the ramifications that that can have on you and how much it separates you from the person that you are like individually, right? So one of the things that I tried to do in this book is make it kind of painful to see other people do it. So even if it's not necessarily painful for the characters, if they're very easily putting that mask back on as a reader, you're kind of like heartbroken to watch them do it because you're like, I don't want you. I want you to have what you need to have and not just what other people need you to have. Right. It's very sad. These poor girls I made up and put through hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, but I mean, that's why I think it's going to be relatable for a lot of people that uh, have grown up this way because a lot of, I mean, they're motivated by survival. Like they have this famous, this famous dad who has built his entire brand on their <laughs> purity. Like what the fuck is that about? You know, like that's yeah, a lot of parental crazy. pressure. <laughs> it seems crazy. But like when you look at pastors, kids in general, right. I'm sure you grew up with the same jokes I grew up with, which is like either they're saints or they're completely off the deep end. And the reason those jokes exist is because the saint portion is the mass portion, right? As long as you just do what everyone wants you to do, there won't be a problem. Mm -hmm. And the deep end is because if you take that mask off and you step outside, you're in danger suddenly. You have no ability to cope, right? So suddenly you're just thrown into the world and in a kind of like Amish room spring a sort of problem, (laughs) you have no no way to get back in right and so you kind of have like a prodigal son situation but you don't want to go home (laughs) yeah and in a lot of in a lot of contexts like anybody could essentially be a narc too right like if you're like deep in and all your friends are in youth group and and you confide in one of them about something that you did that wasn't wasn't approved you know they couldn't they could narc on you i think all the time about how i lied in youth group Like I did say earlier that it was like this great kind of communal therapy session and it was, but like I was always downplaying the things that I had done to be like slightly less worse than they actually were. (laughs) Yeah, because you didn't, you didn't feel safe. Because I didn't feel safe. Right. And so I didn't want to be like, here's the exact details of the bad decision I made. I was like, say I made a decision that was five times less bad. (laughs) 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 What would you say to me then? (laughs) I think the flip, the flip side is too, also that, that 
it it makes you feel like a deviant, even if you like you're, but you're basically normal, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, in the book, Caroline thinks that she's like the devil incarnate and all she does is like have premarital sex. Like that's it. There's <laughs> nothing like she's not really doing anything that any parent would be like, Oh, if my child did that, I would be so upset. You know, it's just kind of, she's, just being a teen but to her those completely normal behaviors are just demonized beyond belief right yeah and one of the other things that i think the book really captures from caroline's perspective is how much like codependent type of behavior or relationship of always 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 trying to know exactly where you stand with everyone around you like mm-hmm. she's so sensitive to whether her sister approves of every single thing she does and the same with all these other uh, these other people in her life um and i i think it, that just rang really true uh is that you always sort of have to have your your head and your heart on a swivel mm-hmm. in some of these spaces especially ones where you are like a pk and and you have extra pressure on you i think it can be I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job of talking about like there are some ways that these things benefit you and some ways in which they really harm you. And I think that in and of itself, right, like emotional awareness of the people around you and what they need is a great skill, right? To be able to look at a group of people and be like, that person's uncomfortable is a useful skill. Oh, The problem is that for people like Caroline, for people like me, to be honest, I was brought up to believe that noticing it made it my problem. So it's like, oh, if that person is uncomfortable, what can I do to make them more comfortable? When in reality, that is not my job, right? It's not your job. And that is kind of the the way that this community teaches you to behave around each other is by like constantly being aware of other people's issues and constantly trying to help them with them instead of ever letting anyone just like sit in that or work through it on their own, which yeah. I don't think is healthy. Right. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, it does, it does make you, uh, you know, feed into like a a savior complex or like even just, (laughs) just think, as you said, that everything becomes your problem. If you, if it, it touches on your awareness. It's just funny because that's not really like the whole thing with the Bible, right? Is like, you can't be Jesus. You can't be the savior, (laughs) like give up now. Right. Like you, you have no fucking shot. And yet it's like, you spend your whole life in these churches trying to be him and not having any awareness that that is the direct opposite of what it literally says you'll ever be capable of doing. (laughs) Just making yourself miserable. Right. And what you, what you touched on just then about how like, it's not, those sorts of things aren't really your problem um, or they don't have to be your problem. And that sure that's context dependent and all these things. Sure. Yeah. But um, what it made me think of is how power relates and, and how power uh, is controlled and who has it. And Mm -hmm. um, it's your book is a very good example of that because Caroline is really starting to notice where those things are. Um, So could you talk a little bit about uh, whether you talk about it um, from within the book or how you experienced it or how you see it now uh, in evangelical spaces, but, but power is so very differently controlled um, in those spaces. And the ideal is one thing and the reality is another. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, I don't know if I should actually say this, but I'm going to. I don't think you can biblically justify the head pastor position. I think it is immoral. I think it's abiblical. I think putting every decision in a church into one man's hand is not at all what the Bible says. And I think that has become normalized because of this kind of, you know, Jesus preached, so I want to preach, or like (laughs) Jesus preached, and so someone has to preach, Mm -hmm. which like, I understand. I mean, it's a nice format. It works pretty well. It's like kind of like a concert. But I think about that all the time when I'm in churches that are evangelical, where you're just watching this one guy stand on the stage and talk. Yeah. And it has always bothered me. I was always like, well, how come he gets to talk? And as a kid, I was always like, why don't women get to talk? And my and the pastors around me were like, well, because that's not their role. 
And that's a really interesting thing to think about because it also doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that it's there, that it's these men's role, right? Like you, it's, there's no kind of, hmm, I guess the interesting thing to me about power in that situation is that you have one person or a kind of group of people who control all of the hard power and none of the soft power, which is what Mm. is so interesting to me about the church is that you have theoretically these people at the top are the only ones that make decisions and the only ones that do anything and the only ones who know how much money is coming in and going out. But in reality, there are all of these other people who have tons of power, but it's just not on the stage, right? You have the people leading coat drives, the people leading Bible studies, the people covering up things for those men, right? And so it's, there's one of the things I kind of wanted to play with is like, I think that there is this kind of obvious injustice happening where people are, people have an immense amount of power over their congregants and do not treat that with respect and don't, and aren't careful with it. And are completely unaware that other people around them are like making decisions that will affect the church, (laughs) which is just like hilarious to me. Like, do you think the women's ministry isn't doing anything? Like what, why don't you check on them? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it plays, it plays out in the local church and even at these bigger levels, like the influence that Beth Moore had in the SBC and like she technically shouldn't have been able like she was Mm -hmm. just a teacher instead of a pastor and so yeah we like that you make millions of dollars for our convention so we're going to let you slide but you couldn't be a senior pastor well it's also just fascinating that everyone was like that even that distinction exists right that like oh Beth Moore isn't a pastor I'm like well I for one went to a lot of bible studies where she was the pastor so I don't really understand where that is coming from like just because you didn't teach young boys or men doesn't mean you weren't preaching, right? Mm-hmm. Like they would almost respect it more if they were like, no, no one is talking. Only like men are talking. <laughs> but <laughs> when it can be used to like gain more power, that's where I think it gets really fishy is when you're making decisions about who gets to speak and what they get to say based on maintaining a power for a specific group of people. Right. Yeah. Or gaining money, which is its own form of power. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, for sure. What drew you to uh, wanting to to do a novel? You've you've done all this other type of writing. uh, um, But what what drew you to wanting to, you know, flesh out these characters and 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 put this type of work out there? I started um, I started working on this just as kind of like I knew that I wasn't very good in nonfiction at describing anything. And I knew I wasn't good at this because my editors were always marking it and being like, this doesn't make any sense. Rewrite. And I was like, oh, no. And so I started off kind of trying to just like write little descriptions of things. And because I was extremely homesick, I was just writing descriptions about Texas And then I just like was working on yellow notepads. And so I just kept writing things. And then eventually I ended up in this space where I was like, okay, I have three notepads full of like words. There has to be something here. And so in that way, I think it kind of happened organically. But I also, when I was working on this story, was trying to report out a couple of stories about like abuse of pastoral power that I could not finish, right? That I like couldn't get enough confirmed sourcing on, that I couldn't tie up neatly enough to ever publish it because there are a lot of like really stringent standards for publishing something like that. Yeah. Um, And you can never really get at the full truth if you're not in the church, right? You don't know everything that's happening ever. And so I kind of thought, well, it's a story I want to tell is one about the ways that a church fails its members or the ways that it fails this specific type of member, young women, um, why don't I just make up the church and then I can know everything about it. Right. (laughs) That's the great thing about fiction is you're like, what color are the walls? I don't know. I'll decide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think it was a very uh, successful effort in that, in that respect, because it was very easy to, to slip back into that sort of world. And I think fiction is a great tool for that sort of thing, just because you can safely inhabit a fictitious space, you know? Yeah. And fiction gives you kind of, when you read in general, it gives you space to project your own visual onto things. So like, yeah. 
one thing that I found is interesting is some people have asked me questions that have like revealed that they have visions of things in the book that are not described in the book. And I'm like, oh, you projected that in, right? Like something that happened in your own church, you kind of added to the structure of the Hope Church in this fictional book because you had the space to do so. And that I think is the the beauty of fiction in general is you can also do that with your emotions. <laughs> so you can just kind of project your own feelings into this book, which is, it's been interesting for me because I thought a lot of evangelical Christians would hate it. And it, a lot of them haven't, right? Like a lot of people have read it and been like, oh, I thought it was a very beautiful story. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, did you read it? <laughs> but it's just because you can kind of inhabit it however you want. Right. Yeah. You do put your characters through a lot, but at the same time, you, you do feel a sense of tenderness towards them. And at, at different points that the text allows you to, you know, be able to appreciate why these these characters are making the choices they do. Even if you, well, I, I mean, you can't appreciate, <laughs> you can't appreciate Luke Nolan's stuff, um, but you sort of understand it, even though you don't want to. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. It, it makes sense. I mean, I didn't yeah. want to write a book that was like mocking of what people believe. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to write a book that treated this like everyone had their head screwed on backwards like I wanted even people making decisions that hurt others for their decisions to make sense to them mm -hmm. because I do think that that is usually the case even in these churches I think oftentimes the decisions that hurt congregants are made with good intentions and I think it is rare not super rare, but mostly rare that it is actual malintention that is causing these problems. And so even Luke Nolan, like he absolutely sucks, but I wanted you to be like, okay, I get why I understand why he sucks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there might be a little, he might be a little sociopathic. I mean, that's up yeah. to the reader to decide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there were, I, I, I think you're, you're right on with that. And, um, especially I think books like this for, for people who maybe don't, don't grow up this, this way, uh, it, it gives them an opportunity to see from, uh, Caroline's perspective that these things are really coherent until all of a sudden they, they aren't. And, and then. Isn't that scary though? Like it's scary oh, yeah, how it's coherent terrifying. it is. <laughs> right. But that's that's what I think that's that's what draws people to it. Um, it helps them make sense of a pretty senseless world. Um, but but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, if if Thank that, you so if that much. wasn't clear, <laughs> I, I thought it was it was great. Um, I read it uh, while it was my vacation read, and I just it, it was great. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I really appreciate you reading it. A book is such a commitment, which I'm very aware of. So yeah, thank you for yeah. taking the time. <laughs> of course. Um, I do want to, to pick your brain if you have a few more minutes just yeah, go ahead. about, um, about your other project that, um, or your other, your other <laughs> line of work. It's not, I love uh, to work. I hate <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> is, um, as I mentioned, you've done a lot of, uh, features at, uh, editing and you're also a co-owner of, uh, Defector, which um, started as a spinoff from, or basically Exodus, <laughs> Exodus of Deadspin, um, which like to get really nerdy about media, that was from the Gizmodo Media Group revamping for like the fifth time. <laughs> um, I, I'm a very weird person in that I'm not in the media, but I watch it really closely. <laughs> that is. Yeah, I don't envy you because I'm aware of it and I don't want to be. And it is my industry. <laughs> so, um, so what? How is um, Defector uh, structured? Because I think it's really interesting from um, anybody that does a podcast or has a website or a Substack or whatever. You know, they they have to eventually start monetizing it and and you've done some interesting things there um so i'd, I'd just love to hear uh, ab about how defector how you yeah. you're building it and your approach to reader support and things like that because um that was really interesting and awesome to see uh, uh happen um once everybody really was forced to leave deadspin so 
yeah, for those of you who don't know, um, I worked at a site called Deadspin. We all did like 25 of us, I guess. And our bosses um, were complete shitheads. And they just very quickly made that worse and worse. So they ran out an editor in chief. Um, they sent down like an edict that we could only write about sports, which was pretty ridiculous because the blogs on the site were already 96% about sports. And because we are um, petulant in a way, we ignored it, the edict, um, and continued to publish things about sports. And so then they fired the editor-in-chief who had been there for 12 years, which was a real slap in the face um, and clearly an intent to like get everyone in line. And so everyone quit. <laughs> we all just walked out. Um, which, you know, do you make those that decision in November of 2019, knowing what we know now about 2020? Probably, but I don't, it would have been a lot harder. Yeah. So we all came into 2020 with no jobs um, and no website. And the real problem um, with sickos like me and my coworkers is we all are addicted to blogging and like have to post or we'll die. So <laughs> you don't have a website. You just have like a lot of people with a lot of chaotic energy and nowhere to put it. And so we started talking about like, okay, is there a way that we could do this on our own? We tried to find like investors, um, but all of the investors wanted like everything. They were like, we'll give you so much money, but you have to give us like 80% of the company. And we were like, that seems like a bad deal to mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. So at some point we, we hired like a business guy because none of us know how to do math. So we got to get someone in here who does. Uh, we hired a business guy and he was like, you know, I think you can pull it off. I think if you launch a subscription model, you can try and pull it off. And so we did. We announced a subscription model and it worked. We like immediately had enough subscribers to sustain us, which was is pretty unheard of in media mm. and was mm -hmm. thrilling. And then we were all kind of like, well, shit, now we have this whole company that we've done very little planning um, for how it's going to work. <laughs> so we had to have kind of a lot of like little conferences to decide what we were going to do. And because we had all been burned so badly by like bosses in the past, we decided to go with a co-ownership model. So it's a cooperative um, organization. I own 5% of it. All of my colleagues own 5% of it. Um, and now we have a lot of business stuff. You know, we have like core values. We have a decision matrix. There's all sorts of things I didn't know existed that we apparently quote unquote need to have legally. So now we have <laughs> handbooks. <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but it's been great. We're, it's going to be the one year um, of the site in September. And we're very excited. We're hoping that everyone doesn't cancel their subscription because that would be very bad. But it's been successful so far. We have great readers. And I think it's going pretty well. Nobody's miserable yet, which is a good sign in the blog universe. Yeah. Whether you do a podcast or a website or anything in between, I mean, it's always great to see people succeed and find a way to make make a living from it because we all consume these things all day long. Um, and unless you're doing it, you don't necessarily realize how much work it is and how valuable it is. And the fact that people still have to pay for houses and kids and, and um, apartments or whatever else. And <laughs> right. so and it's... It's also hard because there's a tendency right now for people to believe that like money is more important than ownership, right? So there's a tendency to say like, oh, if somebody offered you $200,000 for 90% ownership of your podcast, you should absolutely take that and never question it. And I, I kind of take onus of that, right? I think you should question it. Like, why would somebody else own the thing that you do all of the work for? Like, it doesn't, right. it's very basic, like communist principle like the, <laughs> the means of the workers but it i do think it's true that like you deserve to own and get paid for the work that you do right yeah which is why you know substack and other places like uh are so interesting uh right in this particular moment because they do enable you to actually do the work so what's 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 your next sort of project you've done your first <laughs> novel um and you have your co-owner of defector what is on the horizon for you? More um, interviews and, like this? Or? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take three weeks off in August and sleep. Um, that's my main, main projected horizon currently is just planning to not die from overwork. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, 
writing a book is awful. It's like a very difficult process that takes forever. And as I have already indicated, I work way too much. So I'm going to do it again. I'll just start over somehow. <laughs> have I been Googling how to structure novel and all the links are purple? Yes, but it will it'll turn out fine eventually. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, talking with me about your book and your life. And um, where can people find the book? Where can they find you online? What Anything you'd like to plug here at the end? Yeah, um, you can find the book at your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they'll order it for you. If you must use the internet, use bookshop.org, which will mail it to your house. Please do not use the dreaded Amazon. It's bad for books and bad for me. Um you can find me everywhere. My handle's the same. It's McKinney Kelsey on basically every platform. And yeah, I guess that's it. I would love, love for you to read the book. Great. Kelsey, great. thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy.